So, uh, when did you first know you were a... A mutant? take you through the sci-fi original series Battlestar Galactica usually but we're doing a special lockdown series uh so for those of you who don't know Melbourne's in this crazy lockdown with curfew and all the things and so for my sanity I am recording a bunch of episodes with different friends about things I like and today I am joined by Elise also known as Professor Lesbian and we're going to discuss the X-Men movies the first Three, the, the OG Marvel movies, I believe. Woo-hoo! Yeah. Um, and I'm drinking a, um, a Stomping Ground Pride Weiss beer because uh, apparently these movies are super gay. They're very gay. <laughs> what are you drinking, Elise? I'm drinking a Denver Beer Company Pretzel Assassin Amber Lager uh, in honor of Nightcrawler's assassination attempt on the president in X2. Nice. Oh, and I didn't even remember that that was Alan Cumming. I, I know. Was, <laughs> I Alan Cumming. What? He's just such a versatile actor. He's everywhere. Like, he's in, you, you don't even realize it, but he's in every movie. He is. And I, I was thinking about him. I've been following him on um, Instagram. So I've been thinking about him a lot more. And um, he's on the L Word for a period of time. Like, That's right. he's on everything. <laughs> He's so I'm I'm in the middle of researching a, a book about this 1997 video game Goldeneye, which is based on Goldeneye, the first Pierce Brosnan James Bond movie. Yeah, and he's in that. He plays this nefarious computer programmer named Boris, and his like famous line is "I am invincible," <laughs> and then he gets like frozen with some kind of like carb, like some kind of I don't know, like dry ice thing, like Han and- Solo style. That's exactly what it's like, actually. <laughs> you have to look it up. And he apparently got, like, injured during the filming of that. Poor Alan Cumming. But, yeah, he's oh, a no. really... I remember that game. That was on Nintendo 64. Is that exactly. right? Yeah, yeah Boris absolutely. is Alan Cumming. Oh, my God. That's wild. So, tell us... You can tell us a bit about yourself if you'd like. I'm sure our listeners would like to know. Sure. I'm a writer uh, and uh, English professor in Denver, Colorado. And I teach creative writing... I also teach literature, women's and gender studies classes, and my freshman seminar class that I teach every fall is actually themed around superheroes. So I'm a big superheroes and comics and pop culture, sci-fi, TV, film kind of nerd, video game nerd. So, um, yeah. That, Perfectly at is, home on this very nerdy podcast. I um, love this podcast. <laughs> I'm honored I'm honored to be included on it. Thanks so much for asking. <laughs> and Elise and I are also working together on another project, which is coming in October and breaking the third wall here. We're currently in August. I don't know when this will be released, but we're working on a on a project about Sappho together. So that's really exciting too. It's gonna be great. Yeah, so I guess we should get into the X-Men movies. Are you going to give us a lowdown of the three three films and why you wanted to talk about them? Yeah, I'll try to um, keep it short. So these are the films. The first one came out in 2000. It's just called X-Men. The second one, X2, came out in 2003. And then the third in the trilogy, X-Men, colon, The Last Stand, came out <laughs> in 2006. These are all directed by Brian Singer. They all star... You know, the original cast, you remember, Hugh Jackman uh, as Wolverine, Halle Berry as Storm, Ian McKellen as Magneto, 
uh, Patrick Stewart as um, the Professor Professor X, James Marsden in his perennial role as like follow like runner up boyfriend like boyfriend we don't really like he's always that guy in every movie I don't know why he's so pretty too he's such a pretty guy <laughs> yeah he's because he's that character in X Men as uh, Scott Summers in the Notebook and there's one other that I saw recently and I was like why is he always getting shafted yeah apparently um scott summers there's like some nod to buffy in like one of the x-men movies or comics or something where they insinuate that he has a cousin who is like in a mental institution i don't remember exactly what it was but i've definitely read something about it having a connection to buffy there was like a little nod like oh my cousin who's like in southern california who's uh in a mental institution and it was like a kind of like buffy connection but i'd have to look up exactly where i read that Holy smokes, that is such a great Easter egg. I, mm-hmm. I can I want to know all about that. <laughs> well, so the, the reason I've been thinking about X-Men a lot lately is just that I'm adding it into my superheroes class for the fall. So I'm having my students watch all three of the original movies. Terrible and homework. I know, right? There's <laughs> <laughs> If any of my students are listening to this right now, you should, you know, know how lucky you have it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and they're they're just amazing movies for any kind of social justice allegory so that mm. these movies are the comics the movies the x-men are really about civil rights and lgbt rights and disability rights and so they're a great allegory for all those things and that's why i'm really excited about them um and they're just yeah they're cool they're they're yeah. really fun films yeah i totally like i haven't seen them since i was much younger and they're really great they are and i mean like i i'm a huge fan of any superhero movies but there's something about the the ones that kind of kicked off this like huge x-men franchise and and i would argue huge marvel franchise in general um just going back to like seeing the very very first few ones is is really cool yeah yeah controversial opinion for marvel fans but um (laughs) it's true Awesome. So how do you want to do this? Should we go movie by movie and talk about each or should we go through the three movies and then talk about all of them collectively? I think we should do the latter just because I have a little bit of a hard time figuring out what scenes or elements are in which, which movie. So totally we'll just do a big epic overview of the whole series and then dive in thematically. Go for it. All right. So the first X-Men movie, if you haven't seen it in a while, um, opens really iconically in 1944 Nazi-occupied Poland mm-hmm. as this young boy is um, separated from his parents as he's uh, being ushered into the Auschwitz concentration camp. So, I mean, it's, as soon as I see it, I'm thinking about the, the um, you know kids being separated from their parents at the border in the U.S. Anyway, it's very different to watch it today in 2020. Mm. Um, so he's, he's trying to reach back and get back to his parents, and as he reaches, he bends the metal gates of the concentration camp toward him. Uh, and this character, of course, is Magneto, the, the main villain in the series uh, as a young boy. So the first movie is really about this this government movement um, led by this the senator, Robert Kelly, to pass a law called the Mutant Registration Act in Congress, which would um, force mutants to reveal their identities and their abilities uh, in this mutant registration list. Um, and so, of course, this is alarming to Magneto, having grown up uh, during the Holocaust, and he and his uh, sort of band of minions are trying to um, fight against that Mutant Registration Act through violent means. They kidnap the senator, and they subject him to this experimental treatment that 
um, causes him to become a mutant. So the senator who was really anti-mutant and wanting to register all the mutants becomes a mutant. Once they've seen that this test works, they decide to, at a certain point when all of the world's biggest leaders are convened on Ellis Island for this conference, uh, they're going to use this machine to turn all of these global leaders into mutants themselves so that the mutant cause will be their own cause now. Yeah, and watching these like all together was really interesting that it starts with this idea of turning, I guess, like regular people, I'm using inverted commas now, yeah. uh, in, into mutants, and it ends with like people trying to turn mutants back into like homo sapiens. It's like a really beautifully done, I don't know if they planned it like that, but it's kind of lovely when you watch them all in order. Totally. It's mm. it's really, really neat, that, that kind of artistic unity across the series. No, I was going to say, I think I said to you um, that one thing that really struck me about this, uh, having recently watched Xena, is that first scene with Rogue, because we're sort of following Rogue, right, through the sh- yeah. through the movie. And um, when she sees Wolverine for the first time and she sort of sees, oh, this is a, a mutant like me and that same kind of, this is my, like, ticket out. I'm going to kind of, like, creepily get into the <laughs> back of this guy's car and follow him wherever he goes and stuff. It's really similar. Yeah, she, you know, this movie is great because you're, you're being introduced to all the characters for the very first time um in film and yeah she's just she's just put her boyfriend into a coma by making out with him it's her first kiss and she you know her, her touch is poison to people and so she runs away from home meets uh wolverine and then just kind of like hops in the back of his truck without his knowledge because she's like i don't know i guess we gotta stick together <laughs> um and and their relationship is you know throughout the series just one of like wolverine being really protective of her and um, and she kind of plays a big role in all three movies. So yeah, yeah. I, I also like I was watching the old cartoons the other day, and her character is portrayed so differently than in the cartoons. Yeah, in the in the cartoons, she's like so powerful. And I was reading a little bit about her history, and she sort of I think she takes like Ms. Marvel's powers at some point and like absorbs them forever. So she's sort of got like some powers as a baseline. But the character of the movie was really different, and I thought that if we're talking about it being gay, like the idea of like hormones flaring up and everything around that teenage time and her kiss being like poison and that her sexual activity really being policed and like demonized like that, which of course, like she's killing people, but yeah, anyway. Yeah. It's so true. I mean, I think throughout the, since the series, since the comics uh, inception, it's always been that the, the powers exhibit around puberty and that's mm. why, you know, the, the good guy mutants are hiding out in, um, I mean, I'm going to put good guy in scare yeah, quotes because yeah. who, who are the good guys of the series? But they're hanging out at a school for the, for, you know, for gifted youngsters, Professor Xavier's school, which is just a, a front for the fact that they're, it's a mutant school to keep them all safe. So it's just all these kids that are really coming into their own, which I think is for sure a huge metaphor for, um, for queerness, you know, when we're kind of discovering that about ourselves often during puberty. Yeah, and I kind of um, loved the, I don't know if you read into this, but like with the Wolverine rogue relationship, like obviously she's got this kind of schoolgirl crush, he's older, all these things, but I sort of love that moment. Well, there's a couple of moments where like he basically kills her or she dies and then she kind of grabs his life force. And for me, it was really beautiful how like they almost sort of, 
I don't know. I mean, you're a teacher, you have this kind of experience with your students. And I, I know that I have like mentees and I know my experience with them. I sort of get a lot from them and they get a lot from me. And it's a very like mutually beneficial relationship. And it really felt like that for me with Logan and Rogue at different totally. times. Like they, they had a very like, they're both getting a lot out of that. It's true. Like she definitely softens Wolverine up and gives mm. him a way to, you know, feel like he has purpose and connection back to, you know, the world, other people. I mean, when she first meets him, he's like in a cage match, like just making money by beating people up and letting them beat him up. And mm. his whole life is kind of defined by how much pain he can take. And she brings this like sense of joy and the sense of like, there's people I can care about and be connected to. And, um, and then he obviously offers her uh, protection. He's the first other mutant she meets. Um, and th- I think that the, one of the queerest things about the whole series is this notion of chosen family, right? So like, we have to, you know, you have to run away from your your uh, birth family because they don't accept you. But then you find this new family at the um, at the school or in, you know, uh, Magneto's little club is called the Brotherhood of Mutants. Mm. They, he, he calls them all brothers and sisters throughout the movie. He calls other mutants, even if they're not on his own side, brother, sister, old friend. Um, and then they have their they have new names. Right. So that that feels very queer, too, that like throughout the series, it's like. What's your name? Oh, it's it's Rogue. It used to be Marie, or you know, it's Marie again. Like, there's this kind of like this this sense of like chosen identity, or yeah. Uh, I was listening to a podcast the other day about the Matrix as a trans allegory, and obviously, it probably was given who made the Matrix. Uh, Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they were talking about was the chosen online names, and this person was a, a trans woman was talking about how that was actually how they first started to, I guess have the opportunity to be a woman was online because um, obviously you can choose your name and your the way you present yourself in a way that you, you can't necessarily do in person. And so they found a lot of comfort in the internet in being able to do that. And I think like similarly, the, the changing of the name and identity is really interesting. Yeah, and there's even a component, like at the very end of the first movie, um, Rogue has, she, I mean, the, the way that, she was captured by the by the Brotherhood, and they were trying to use her to power their doomsday device that would mutate all the world leaders. And the sort of trauma on her body in that process has has streaked her hair full with like a streak of white. Mm. And it's this great like at the end of the movie, you know, Logan kind of asks her like, "What's up with your hair?" And she's like, "I like it. I think I'm going to keep it." And it's this like set, you know this pride around like how trauma fits into her identity and how she's she's a survivor and she um, so even her physical appearance is starting to change. She's wearing like the nylon over her arms so she can touch people without harming them and she's just like coming into her own like body and I and like just her physical appearance and her clothing and her manifestations of her identity in all those ways is really empowering. I mean, if we talk about terrorism which i love to do and we talk about terrorist organizations and the way they sort of take these young impressionable people and sacrifice Mm -hmm. them for their goals and they're happy to do so because even though they're working for a, a greater cause again with like air quotes they're not necessarily willing to sacrifice themselves or they think that they're more important for the movement than this you know young person that they're apparently fighting for and so I thought that was really interesting and powerful yeah and I mean so they're they're sort of like using rogue's powers and bodies to power the machine in the first movie but I think that that theme comes out even more in the the two sequels mm. Wolverine I mean excuse me uh, Magneto starts really heavily recruiting uh, mutants for his cause in I think the second movie and he's holding these big speeches and 
he's uh, so he he'll he'll meet a mutant and literally look at them and say, "What is it that you can do?" And mm. then they'll they'll show him and he'll be like, "I could make use of you." He c- kind of like woos Pyro, uh, Bobby and Rogue's friend, away from the the school people and more into his. You know, he makes him one of his bad guys because um, he's a really impressionable, angry, you know, vulnerable young kid. And then I think the the worst manifestation of it is what he does to Myst- uh, to Mystique, who's like his his right hand woman, and she has these incredible shape shifting abilities. When she, um, and I guess we should mention in the in the third movie, it's the plot is kind of oriented around a cure for mutants that yeah. the government has developed, um, which the which they immediately weaponize. And so at some point, Mystique is shot with a syringe full of the cure. And she loses her powers, and Magneto instantly ditches her. I mean, it's implied they're in a romantic or sexual relationship, and he's immediately like, you're not one of us anymore, and he abandons her. Yeah. He can't use her anymore. Yeah, and that's really that's really devastating. Um, I, I found that, like, scene just so awful. And I thought about, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but I know that for me, like, I'm obviously very, like, straight-passing woman, and I remember being in a situation where... I don't know, it came up that I was queer and it's sort of like seeing the delight in my boss's eyes that I was like another touch point for diversity that he could use. And mm. it was this really disgusting moment. And I've, I've seen it with, with friends of mine as well. And you have this sort of idea that like, oh, you're, you, you have this and this and like you, you're ticking these boxes of diversity for people. And I sort yeah. of feel that way uh, with Magneto and the way that he sort of categorized, like, how are you useful to me? Like, how can I use you to say that yeah. I am, I am, I'm increasing the diversity of my company. And I think that in the, totally. in the Black Lives Matter movement and everything, I think that's the experience. I mean, I can't speak to the experience of black people, but me as a very straight passing white woman, I have experienced that. Um, and I imagine that's much the same for a lot of people of color and black and indigenous folks as well. Totally. Or even within the, um, within certain disabilities communities or certain queer communities that, that there's the policing of boundaries that can, that can get really, you know, inside club, outside club. And, Mm. um, there's situations in which like, you know, we, we honor those spaces and, and need those to be, uh, spaces that are, you know, for for a particular right, like there's deaf culture, and deaf culture is like for deaf, hard of hearing, uh, and child of deaf adult people, um, and it takes a long ter- time to really, you know, get a sense of that if you're learning ASL as a hearing person or something like that, um, or to or to get your deaf name and your <laughs> yeah, I I mean I think that like when Magneto looks at Mystique and says like you know you're no longer one of us, she I mean she's lived her entire adult life in this community of the of the Brotherhood of Mutants, and so mm. when she like loses her mutant you know physical status she like her history hasn't changed her personality hasn't changed you know and that's like a theme you might even see on like the new l word when it's like well you know i'm not part of the lesbian community anymore because i'm you know i identify as a man and so that you know i'm no longer part of that community and i feel yeah or suddenly a bisexual who's in a straight relation how hetero relationship uh therefore i don't have a right to be a part of these spaces and you know the i've been so lucky that i've been for the most part, part of queer communities that are very accepting of different identities and haven't really experienced that level of biphobia. But it's like all over, like the L word, for example, is this idea that like, it's like not a real queer, <laughs> you know? Right, right. <laughs> like, and and that like... pussy do I have to eat? <laughs> <laughs> so there's like a quota or something. <laughs> yeah. Alrighty. So as we go into the second movie, I have opened my second beer which is a modus operandi, modus operandi, I don't know how to pronounce that, 
Uh, it's a cherry cream coconut sabro, which I've never heard of before. Um, and it is from New South Wales. Represent. Yeah. It's it's really weird. It's like cherry cream coconut flavor. It's very Ooh, bizarre. Yeah. That sounds great. It is actually really good. I'm not usually really into that, but um, I'm enjoying it. That sounds really good. Which was to touch on the different, because for me, the big thing of these two is like the different ways to do activism, which I'm sure is for you as well. So I was the modus operandi of each organization. Yeah, I mean, that gives us a good entry point too to talk about like the kind of biggest allegory within X-Men, which is the different approaches of, like you mentioned, of Professor Xavier and Magneto, which um, Stan Lee and then the writers who continued the comic uh, into the 90s, especially were really inspired by uh, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and their different approaches to uh, civil rights movement. Is Professor X a a Malcolm X like not? No, so Professor X would be MLK Jr. Ah. Uh, the kind of like you know super nonviolent mm. integrationalist, assimilationalist. Um, of course, there's nuance within that. Tons of mm. nuance. It's a great new book about that actually out right now. Um, whereas Magneto is the more like. Um, militant, you know, like separatist. Um, we need to protect ourselves at all costs. And in fact, mm. I think it's at the end of the. It's at the end of the very first movie. Magneto is imprisoned in a plastic, all plastic prison, which is very cool. So he can't mm. escape, and he looks at Professor X and he says, you know, something along the lines of like, we need to liberate ourselves by any means necessary. And he mm. says, by any means necessary which is the refrain and I think the title of a really famous Malcolm X article um, that then appeared in Ebony magazine uh, as like a poster of him holding an assault rifle, looking out a window. And it just says by any means necessary on the poster. Mm. So that, that being put in the movie was like a direct nod to Malcolm X for, for Magneto. That's so cool. Um, one of the books that I've been very slow, look, I've been reading it since January, but everything sort of went to shit and I stopped reading which is terrible but I just like I don't know I just haven't been reading and I should is a book about the Black Panther movement and uh I just it's interesting because I spoke to uh someone in my life who is a bit older who is black and he and I was like it's just so cool reading this book and like the tactics they had and he was like then why do you think it's cool like he he was really defensive about it like I don't think that he really liked that I thought it was cool and I just for me it was like the fact that they just like read up on their legal rights and then were like we are gonna do everything exactly within the law but then also use like like they would just like rock up to neighborhoods and be like we're just gonna walk around with guns which is our legal right and like follow police and make sure they don't kill black people and it was just like but it's it's so like it's I am such a nonviolent person and like being from Australia where we have such strict gun control laws. I honestly just like don't even remember seeing a gun as a child at all. Um, It's against my values, but I just thought their approach was so interesting. And like, because I'm like a terrorism and like, I guess like violent political nerd, because I just find it so interesting. Uh uh, I just found that really cool, which seems to be, kind of a mix between the two right it's like we are both like trying to like work within society and then also trying to like be separatists it's really interesting i think yeah i mean it's it's magneto throughout the movies like he has a really sympathetic cause and Mm. 
you know, so so to to get into the second movie, um, the second movie escalates just like Magneto knew it would from mm. the government trying to register mutants to trying to exterminate them. So mm-hmm. there's this new character introduced in the second movie named William Stryker. He's a military scientist uh, with the U.S. military, and he has a mutant son who's incredibly powerful and can can mentally manipulate other mutants and control them. And Stryker is basically using his son to try to annihilate every mutant in the world. Um, so when Magneto is is using these these more militant tactics and these these non-compromising tactics to preserve the lives of his people, mutants, you, you know, you're kind of like, well, who, you know, is he really a bad guy? <laughs> like, is he, yeah. you know, it, like, he, he's a really, and it's, it's similar in Black Panther, right, with, um... Mm. Uh, oh my gosh, T'Challa Michael and B. Jordan's yes, character. Michael B. Jordan's yeah. character. What is his name? Uh, I can't but yeah, remember. I'm terrible with names. I know I'm sorry. T'Challa and Killmonger. Sorry, mm. Killmonger and Killmonger has the more Alchemex. You know, like we like we have to we have to fight back. You know, you're 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 not gonna um, oppress us. Like we're we're not gonna stand for that. Um, and we'll use and we'll use by any means necessary. Yeah, and I also love uh, in Black Panther, and that's like I think my favorite of the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. Like, I, I think I, if I had to choose a favorite, it would for sure be Black Panther. It's a beautiful film. Oh, and because it's about terrorism, which is like totally my thing. So I think that for me, what I loved about his character is you sort of have this like perfect utopian community and a whole uh, diaspora that was completely suffering and a country that was, uh, sorry, a continent that was suffering because of colonialism. And you have him in this situation where he's like, how can you do that? Like, and I think that even though, um, I I think that that's really interesting to me because you see people who come from, and I I get this a lot. So like coming from, uh, I guess a less affluent background, um, I see that there are people that I know who have come from similar circumstances who never want to mention it again and never want to stand up for that again. And I've had conversations with friends who are like, what we came from the same background as you. Why do you yell about it all the time? And I'm like, because it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be that everybody has to pretend that they're a part of this affluent class to fit in. Like you came from that, you know that what they're saying is wrong. Like how can you not stand up and say something about that? And that drives me insane. And I think you get the same thing with like LGBTQ representation. You get the same thing with people of color and black and indigenous folks who are like, okay, cool. Well now I'm in this, in this group and I am going to just forget the problems of my people like and I think that that happens a lot it's like I'm gonna be that person that yeah I don't know I'm, I'm thinking of um what's her face Candace Owens is it Candace Owens like she's just like she's like a poor like black woman and she's like super republican and I'm like how can you do this you know right. like how could you do this to your people like how can you agree with these policies and it's it's um yeah I don't know it's, yeah I mean I mean, at the end of Black Panther, like, mm. I, I can't remember Killmonger's line exactly, but he says something like, you know, you okay, you've conquered me, T'Challa, like, I'm dying here, you know, bury me in the ocean with, like, the souls of, you know, everyone who was on the Middle Passage who jumped overboard rather than be enslaved. Mm. And it's like, it's really hard to find fault in his argument and to, like, to see him as the bad guy anymore in those final moments and... I guess the thing about X-Men is like every time, I mean, Magneto's never wrong about what he says the humans are going to do and how they're going to escalate things. 
Magneto, you know, from the opening shots of the first movie, we see comes from the Holocaust, and we find out in the later films that Professor Xavier comes from more a place of privilege. He grows up with with more privilege and and less of that trauma that Eric uh, Magneto went through. And so you just really understand where they're both coming from. And I think what helps is that they both have such respect for each other. You know, they they refer to each other as old friends. They're always like playing chess together and it's very (laughs) symbolic. And Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart are such great friends in real life. I mean, Ian McKellen like officiated Patrick Stewart's Stewart's wedding. (laughs) So they like have great chemistry on screen and you really just believe them. Um, And I think the second movie, it's not just that you see how the Brotherhood of Mutants have such a sympathetic cause. It's also that you start to see the ways that the um, Professor Xavier crowd are doing sketchy things. Like mm. they, he, he has this Cerebro machine, which reminds me of like the U.S. like surveillance system. Like Cerebro can see everyone in the world and what they're doing and he can enter their mind. And he has the power through that machine to kill everyone. Mm. Um, there's a scene in the second movie where they're in their, their SR-71 Blackbird jet and the you know U.S. Air Force is like, hey, you need to not fly your illegal jet through this airspace. Like, they don't know what's going on. They don't know who this plane is, and it's threatening the, you know, the airspace. And so they're they're asking them to, like, lower your altitude, you know? And, like, I I mean, basically, the X-Men shoot them down out of the sky. They, they, like, make sure to show you that the, the Air Force pilots, like, eject. But, like, I don't know. It's, like, what gives you guys the right to, like, do these, like... That's honestly, like, how the U.S. international relations are and it's been striking that's a good me, point but it's been striking me so much recently because even though i would say that a lot of my friends in the states have pretty i guess like good understandings of international relations comparatively to most americans one thing that's been really interesting lately is to see all of the kind of anti-china rhetoric and how americans respond mm. to someone else kind of flexing their international power like that because for me i'm like you know, when we learn about international relations in an Australian university system, we're just like, yeah, America like makes all these rules and then never follows them. And that's just like what America does. And I don't think most Americans realize that. Like I I had a conversation with a friend who said, he was like, you know, China is the second biggest donator to the who. And I was just like, who is the first? It's America. Like, why do you think that the who is in China's pocket? Because they're the second biggest donator. America is the largest one. And that's the case with a lot of different things. Like you both have veto power and living in Australia, we are like at the whim. We're right between um, China because mm. geographically and um, for exports, I think for exports, we're equally dependent on America and China. So we're like right in the middle of this like power struggle. Um, and it's it's just so interesting that you say that i hadn't thought of it yeah i mean it could so like yeah that that makes that scene kind of an allegory for like the x-men are i mean even though they're they're defined the u.s air force in that scene but really what it's representing is like the x-men are the u.s kind of going in and doing whatever Mm. they want and and Mm. and it's because they're telling themselves like we're doing this because it's the right thing to do we're doing the good thing which is exactly what magneto is telling himself and that's exactly exactly why terrorism is such an interesting phenomena they're both just really uncompromising and i mean i'm looking at a quote here from the first movie where uh professor xavier says mankind is not evil just uninformed Mm. and throughout the movie you can see that like where he's coming from is that he really thinks that the only reason that humans persecute mutants is because they are afraid. 
And, you know, at one point Storm is, is talking to um, the senator after he, he's dying because he's been turned into a mutant in the first movie. And um, he's on his deathbed and, and he says, do you hate people like me? Meaning humans. Mm. And she says, sometimes. And he says, why? And, and she goes, I think I'm afraid of you. So it goes both ways is what mm. Professor Xavier's side is. It's like, it's not hatred. It's, it starts in fear. Absolutely. Um, whereas, but, Look but at the man's response to like the Me Too movement. Yeah. Like, they're just like, oh, what? So I can't even speak to a woman anymore? And I'm like, you realize that we're scared of being killed, right? Or, like, assaulted or sexually, like, penetrated. Like, these are the things that we fear, and you're just scared of being reprimanded? Like, you've been living with this fear for so long. (laughs) Totally. And it's, it's like, I think Magneto thinks more, I don't care why these people hate me, if they're afraid of me, or... You know, if if they just hate me, but I know from my experiences being surviving the Holocaust that like the the the, the oppressive you know um, normative culture will seek to eradicate whatever's different by any means necessary, and so then he makes fear his weapon, right? He's like, you know, you're gonna humankind's gonna see how powerful we are, and they're not gonna mess with us. And it's like, mm. you know, I mean, it, it's just really, really fascinating because I guess that does make it terrorism, right? If, he, if his goal is fear. Yeah. Someone, I don't remember who quoted this in the movie, but I wrote it down. And one of the lines that came out to me was, um, most people will never know anything beyond what they can see mm, with their own yeah. two eyes. And I think about this a lot uh, because I think that a lot of ignorance in my experience just comes from just having no, like, you know, I could use like, I was so ignorant about the trans experience until someone in my life was trans. And this was when I was a lot younger and a lot less, I guess, engaged and informed. I'm from a pretty small place in Australia. My family is pretty ignorant, <laughs> bless them. Um, and so I didn't know a lot of these things. Uh, feminism was a dirty word, et cetera, et cetera. And so for me, it was like through having a friend and I, I still have conversations with people and like they use really binary language to explain situations or even just something as, as, uh, as benign as someone saying, because I'm bisexual, Oh, are you dating any men or women right now? And I'm like, why can't you yeah. just say like people, like, I'm not going to not date a trans, right, like a non-binary right. trans person. Like that's yeah. not what bisexual <laughs> means to me. Um, and it's just like, people just don't think about it. Whereas for me, every time I see it on Twitter, it drives me mad. Cause it's like, <laughs> you have people who use like, women and men and i'm like right. you just say people it's less characters you only have 280 <laughs> like you have such a small amount of characters like it's less letters and you're totally. being inclusive and it's just like but if people don't have non-binary people in their life they don't think about it or talk to it and then mm. the other quote that i <laughs> i wrote i mean i i think this was all around the oh. coming out scene with his family we have to talk about that movie. too is the yeah? Is the have you tried? Yeah. Okay. That that whole scene, that whole scene <laughs> is the gayest thing in the entire franchise, right? So like, we got to paint the picture. Like, he his parents think he's out of school for gifted youngsters. Um, they don't know he's a mutant, mm-hmm. and they're all sitting around the living room, and he's like just told them, and and they're like, we still love you, but have you, yeah, have you ever tried not being a mutant? It's like. Oh my gosh, every queer person hears that when they come out. Like, <laughs> Well, they did the same thing in Buffy, right? They did the, have you tried yeah. not being a slayer? Like, they've done it, like, so many times. Um, it's. I thought that was funny. I think in that scene as well, um, 
when I don't know, know who's talking to each other, but it's in the same like dot point. So I feel like it must be together is the quote that sometimes anger can help you survive. Yeah. And I think that's to talk with the radicalization of the right. fire guy. Yeah. He's, he's kind of, yeah. John AKA Pyro is like, he's, he's currently with the X, the X-Men, but he, you can tell he's like Magneto curious. Yeah. Yeah. He's, right. he's just really angry. And I think that this is like, for me, like a part of that, like radicalization journey. It's like, he is just like the perfect person to prey on if you're, he's like, he's like the uh, Dylan Roof or like the, um, what's the Charleston guy's name? You know, like that young guy who's like, just like goes on this. And actually the New York Times did an awesome uh, mini series about this called Rabbit Hole, a podcast uh, about the guy who's just like, sort of like, oh, maybe I like some things Joe Rogan said. And then like YouTube sends them on this spiral into like, all of these like really far right pundits and then they're like totally radicalized and go like shoot it's a bunch like of people. The the other the other thing contained in that relationship between Pyro and Magneto, um there's there's the scene where Magneto comes up to to Pyro and he goes, you know, what's your name? Uh and Pyro says John. And Magneto says, What's your real name, John? Mm. And then John mm. says Pyro. And um Magneto says, Quite a talent you have there, Pyro and then Pyro responds, I can only manipulate the fire, I can't create it. Magneto's response is, you are a god among insects, never let anyone tell you different. And it reminds me of that queer kinship mm. and queer family where, like, when you meet someone who's queer and tells you for the first time, like, this unique thing about you isn't a liability or a weakness or a shortcoming, it's what makes you amazing and fabulous. I mean, it reminds me of, like, the house mothers and, you know, house parents in, in Pose, right, who, like, adopt you into their chosen family you have a new name. You have like a house style and colors and outfits, and um, and someone is just validating you and telling you like, yeah, this isn't this isn't anything wrong with you. This is the best thing about you. This is the coolest thing about you. Yeah, I mean the same thing sort of happens with Alan Cummings' um, character in the L Word when he meets Max yeah. for the first time, and he's Max is a uh, Moira mm-hmm. at this time, and is because this is a part of L mm-hmm. Word I'm up to right now. So and and all of these lesbians are just so like blind and you can see the kindness in Alan Cummings character coming up and being like, I know, totally. I know who you are. And, um, you know, it brings him into trans circles, introduces him to trans people, like really opens up space. And he's like, even when he brings him to his first like party, he's like, okay, this is Moira. Do you have another name that you prefer? And it's the same thing. It's yeah. like, oh, actually Max. And he's like, cool, this is Max, everybody. It's like the same sort of experience for this um, trans guy who is from, you know, middle America, yeah. doesn't know that that's an option. And it's so, I mean, within X-Men, we have so many examples of that chosen versus give like biological family, especially, uh, you know, father-son relationships. There's Magneto and Pyro. There's Bobby and his parents. But then at the beginning of the third movie, you see Angel. He's it's a flashback to him when he was a little boy. Oh my god! And he's in yeah, yes. he's in the bathroom. His dad's trying to get in. He's locked himself in there, and he's using every sharp object he can find in the house to physically remove the the beautiful angelic wings from his body because he knows his dad won't accept mm. it. And sure enough, his dad won't accept it. Yep. And then the third movie's all about you know this cure for mutantism. And the dad is like, I'm going to give you the cure. Like, I I love you and you need to have this cure. You need to be normal. You need to be just like everybody else. And it's heartbreaking. It's just devastating. 
I mean, the, uh, I guess the the one last, like, father-son relationship that's really interesting is Stryker and Jason. And Strike, there's this trans moment where, where Jason, when he's projecting a vision of himself into someone's mind, he projects a little frightened girl. Mm. And, I mean, yeah, there, there's him uh, and his father, and his father's, like, using him um, to eliminate the X-Men. Uh yeah, it's it's just it's like I I sometimes I'm just like a wreck when I watch these movies and see all this queer stuff. It's like <laughs> it feels very real. I mean, that's actually really interesting because I that uh, Matrix podcast that I was listening to that I mentioned earlier. Um, one of the things that apparently was in the first Matrix, although I don't think it's confirmed, was that uh, the character Switch was supposed to be a different gender in the Matrix than in oh yeah real life yeah. And so, and that was supposed, like, so that would have really brought it home, but apparently that was what that character was for. But going back to Angel and his relationship with his father, that, yeah, that to me was just so, like, there is a, like, the cutting of the wings, and then later there's the strapping of the wings, like, when he comes in to do the test, and his dad's like, it's what, it's what you want, it's what we want. It's so so devastating. devastating. It's, it's just, and look, like, I mean, Weirdly, I think my queerest experience is not being queer, but just being like incredibly different from my family. And like, I love my family, but it's it's a really challenging relationship because ultimately we have completely different things that we value. And, you know, there was a time, I don't know what the frack came over my dad, but like where he wanted me to like be a policewoman. And I was like, have we met ever? Have we met? And so it's just like, I think there, there are things that parents want for their kids and, and there's so much like pushing of that on children and like just such a, you know, a problem with accepting that maybe we want different things. Like I just, I look at my dad's life and it's not the life that I would ever choose for myself. And I think, yeah, I think that happens a lot with, um, queer parents and kids. It's, um. Mm. it's it's a it's really interesting to watch these movies now as a parent myself and to you know to really fervently believe that i'll always you know put whatever my daughter wants first and at the same time you're like well i really love reading i hope she loves reading you know and and (laughs) i feel like so you're always going to have some things that you value that you are so core that you but i think what what the third movie gets into more with that angel stuff that's that's so cool is like that movie to me is the most about disabilities, right? Because this this notion of the cure mm. gets into what's called the social construction of disability. And the idea there is that, you know, the world tells people with disabilities, like, the problem is you and that your legs don't work, right? Like, that's the problem here. And what we have to do is come up with the cure and fix your legs, because then you won't be a burden on society anymore. And what the social model says is, the problem isn't my legs, it's that this building doesn't have a fucking elevator or a ramp. Like, the problem is that society is built yeah. in a way that excludes me and excludes my body and my 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 being. And so I think that the third movie mm. being about the cure is very much like, these X-Men have these really different bodies. A lot of disabilities are genetic mutations, and I've seen some really cool writing by writers with disabilities talking about how they feel. Like, I, I'm not disabled, I'm an X-Man, you know? And so, so like... yeah. I had I went to a very similar talk on oh, the really? philosophy seminar. Yeah, it was this woman and she was talking about how I, I and it was it was kind of different from what you're talking about because she was sort of talking about the 
techno- technological advancements that will happen in terms of replacement uh, limbs and such, and that the people who are born with disabilities are going to be the people to have the access to this. And so it will be like a really big switch of like suddenly like you'll want to have that like enhanced sort of place in society of having enhancements in your body. And I thought it was just such an interesting perspective. Um, but I love the idea that uh, people with disabilities consider themselves X-Men. I've, I definitely um, uh, have seen some content from people in the deaf community who are like, but I have all these other senses that are so heightened True. that like you miss out on. Yeah, I, I mean, the, cu- the really cure cool. stuff resonates hugely with the deaf community. Be- I mean, for me as a, as a non-deaf mm. viewer because of this debate around cochlear implants, right? Like where you have folks in the capital mm. D deaf community that are saying like, I don't want a cochlear implant. I don't want my kid to have a cochlear implant. Like this is a culture just as much as it is like a, you know, situation that my body is in and how my body works. And so. But it's the same thing totally. with assimilation uh, in terms yeah. of like different cultures. Like this idea that like assimilation is the best thing. Like I am from like every kind of white person and I, you know, I go to Bangladesh or the Philippines or like places and there is such a rich cultural heritage. Like I spend my Christmas every year with a family from Trinidad and it's like the culture around the family and like the foods and the practices and stuff. It's, it's something that I really missed. Like I have no, cultural heritage like I I had to search to know where I'm from and even my family don't know like I'm Scottish and I asked like what our tribe was and I my family has no idea they don't care they don't know and it's the same with like every kind of identity that I have like I have no idea about any of it it's just like I'm a white Australian and that's like it even though I have grandparents that I remember with accents like that's how close it is for me that I know that I am like there but like we still just don't have any traditions or, or practices from those except <laughs> the drinking. I mean, lot, I, I guess. think that the movies really show that like the 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 mythical norm, the oppressive mythical norm, it can become a habit so easily that you just that you that you mm. get the cure and you integrate and you um or or you know, you give into that fear and that which becomes hatred, which becomes registration, which becomes annihilation, that it it has a kind of momentum behind it that's hard to fight unless you're as mm. active as, you know, Magneto is. Like, Magneto is doing the most work resisting all this stuff, and then the X-Men kind of come in and, like, clean up whatever violent way he's he's approached that. But, like, his intervention is what stopped the thing from happening, you know? And then the X-Men just come in and, like, mm. make it less violent. So, like, the, 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 like, opposing forces there of the two of them, and that's why the chess metaphor is so great, is what keeps everything in check. And I... I really appreciate yeah. the way that the third movie handles the cure rhetoric because they don't play, portray it as all bad or all good, right? There are some mutants who really want the cure, and they talk about the like passing privilege. Mm. So, like H- Hank, the um the the blue uh, mutant, he's like, yeah, like I might want this cure because like you know Storm like can have her superpower and like also look like sexy and like pass and and like not be blue and but what if i want this cure and rogue ends up getting the cure because she's just like i want to be able to touch people and have sex and this is important to me and at the end of the movie she gets the cure and it's not a bad thing it's just like she chose this for herself she didn't do it for bobby or for her boyfriend or whatever she did it for herself and you can be empowered to make that choice and like as long as you're making it for yourself and society's not making it for you or pressuring you into it then it's great yeah, it's just there's just so much in them. I remember this coming out when when people were really on the like born this way thing 
around queerness and it, and there was even this conversation for a while around like do you think there's a gene for queerness and some people started getting really nervous about that rhetoric going too far because if there's a queer gene and we have CRISPR in gene editing are you going to just edit out the queerness out of people and are we going to disappear and so I think like what's really neat about watching X-Men now because I think the last time I watched it I probably was like a teenager like wishing so bad I wasn't gay is that you know, now I, it, being gay is my favorite thing about myself. I would never change it in a million years. <laughs> I love it. I think it makes me special and mutant and whatever. But I certainly like would have changed it if I could have when I was younger. I would have edited that right out, you know, if I had the choice uh, back then. Yeah, and I think that's, it's interesting. Like, I definitely made a choice very young, which was, I had a choice. Like, I could have stayed in my hometown and I could have done everything that my parents wanted me to do and I would have been so deeply unhappy and not only that but it would never have been enough yeah. either and I think about it a lot because I've had such a weird like I mean I first went to university when I was 17 and I think about the fact that I could have had like a degree by the time I was 12 wow. like that's wild um I know right uh and and being a qualified professional at 20 and and sometimes I look back on my life and I'm like holy shit like I made so many choices and and but like I ended up not getting a degree till I was 30 which is is so crazy right I I would never take back that choice to be different and weird and I certainly like have in the last few years leaned so much more heavily into into that and I think what you find is that when you lean into your difference that so many people feel like that and no one's spoken to them about it. Like being a victim of sexual assault, like as a child, um, being uh, like bisexual, which I just thought everybody <laughs> was attracted to everybody. I didn't know that that wasn't a thing. I just thought that that was like how people were. Um, but even things like enjoying sex or like just finding the world bizarre, like the way that we sort of like live and value people bizarre it's like when you start talking about things you realize you're not alone and I think the X-Men is just I don't know when the last time was that I watched these movies I've watched the new ones but watching these movies it was crazy and um I mean I don't know do you think that the tone shifted because for me I I always find it interesting like pre 9-11 and post 9-11 mm-hmm. cinema oh you've got the yeah sorry it's so dark by the way it's just so like <laughs> I don't mind the darkness. The cicadas are great. Yeah, if, if you're hearing the cicadas, it's because uh, I'm outside in Denver at nighttime. Because <laughs> my kid is inside sleeping and I have a tiny house. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. Um, but if you think about the, um, the pre and post 9-11, do you think it changed the movies? Um, I don't know that in the... I mean, certainly you see like in the Batman series, there was like... You know, the Nolan films are very, very post-9-11 informed. I think that... Okay, so Mm. I think what happened with these X-Men movies is that the first one comes out in 2000, and the most popular superhero movies at that time, um, through the mid and late 90s, had been the Joel Schumacher Batman movies. And those were just very Mm -hmm. campy, over-the-top, you know, nipples on the bat suits. It's like Jim Carrey and Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah, Batman Forever and Batman and Robin. And they were just really marketed for, you know, kids. And there was lots of toys and action figures. And yeah, and they, they, kid, you know, yeah. they were they were kids movies, those superhero movies. When did Phantom come out? I feel like I saw Phantom as a kid as well. I'm going to look it up because my dad's a really big Phantom Blake? fan. 
Yeah, and Blade came out in 1998. Um, but the, you know, mm. even Blade Blade wasn't a box office hit the way those you know the way those like Batman movies were. So when X Men came out in 2000, mm. they really wanted. I think it really was this attempt to be a little bit more realistic and a little bit more gritty, not dark gritty like the Nolan films, but this attempt to be more. I mean, in the first film, Wolverine very pointedly is like, what's up with these black leather jumpsuits we're wearing? And Scott says to him, like, what would you prefer, yellow leather? Which is, like, a reference to the, the comic book costume. Mm. And so it was the film, like, really saying, like, this is an adult superhero movie. It's still fun. It's still something you can take your kids to. But um, so I, I think it happened pre-9-11. And I, I just think that X-Men has always, I mean, Stanley in 1963 very intentionally created this to be an allegory about the civil rights. He's said that many times. Yeah. When the cartoon was out in the 90s, um, there was a whole plot line around AIDS. I don't know if you remember this, but... Oh, shit. I don't remember it. I was watching... I've been re-watching random episodes on Disney um, because it's there. And I, I it's funny because, like, my dad was such a comic guy. Like, my dad's just, like, the biggest nerd all around. And so he was really, like, into us being into comics. And the only ones I remember reading are Asterix and Obelix, which I read a lot, uh, Tintin which I also like was kind of into, but then I also really remember reading X-Men as like probably my only like Marvel comic. And then my dad was really into Phantom, um, which I never really was into. Uh, but I really remember having like an X-Men comic. I remember watching the X-Men animated series, but I don't remember the AIDS plotline, but I should look up when it is and watch the episodes because I have been watching them. I just watched the Phoenix trilogy in like season three. Uh, I have been watching like... It's great. I mean, the there. basic gist of it is that there is a disease that only affects mutants. Hmm. And so once a mutant catches it, they're really like targeted and ostracized in society and the humans say like, oh, you filthy wow. mutant, blah, blah, blah. And then the humans start to catch it too. And people assume that they're mutants because they have it and then they, they get a taste of what it's like to be so ostracized and i mean even at the time i believe this people understood exactly what this was like it wasn't it was a very thinly veiled metaphor mm. and so i mean x-men has just always been about difference and the kind of like human rejection of difference and the politics around how we respond to that and i guess like the mm. reason another another huge thing that comes up in the second movie um, that we didn't talk about is there's a scene when the cops show up to Bobby's house because Bobby's come out to his parents as a mutant. His little brother calls the mm. cops immediately because he's afraid. Yeah. So fear drives this hate response and this re reaction. The cops show up and they are, all the X-Men are out on the front porch. They're surrounded by police officers pointing guns at them. And Wolverine mm. has his claws out and there's an officer screaming at him, like put the knives down Wolverine looks at him and very calmly says, I can't. And the cop shoots him in the head. Which is so the fucking exactly. experience. Exactly. Like, it's just, like, yeah, it's 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 wild. The um, Battlestar Galactica also did a subplot with silent, Cylons only oh, really? getting a disease. I don't remember that. Um, I don't remember yeah, that. I don't know no. if you remember that. There was a scene of that. It was, yeah, that's very interesting and relevant. And I've been thinking about it a lot in COVID times, but yeah, it is that, that I, it didn't strike me at the time, but you're right. That is really like, it's like, can you not be black? Like the police you can't be a mutant. Like, you just can't just like you're, you're standing and, while mutant. Yeah. And, um, he has a, mm. you know, part of his body is, is threatening to this cop and, you know, 
Mm. Cops are experiencing black men's bodies as a threat just in their existence. Um, you know? Yeah. And, and so that struck me so, so much, you know, rewatching it in 2020. I guess the other, the the last, like, really cool thing that I picked up rewatching that recently was in the third movie around, uh, a big part of the plot is, um, is Jean. So she, she's a very powerful, mm. you know, telepathic mutant, and, and she has, um, mm. she's all these really powerful, um, abilities, and what's revealed is that Professor X, because she, he, because he felt kind of paternalistically like she couldn't handle her own powers, He's been controlling her powers for her and like limiting what she can do. And her subconscious is rebelling against that control. And her subconscious is this very dangerous Phoenix character. And, you know, Magneto mm. kind of points out to him, like you, you never had the right, or, or I think Wolverine kind of points out like, who gave you the right to make this decision to control her mind and limit her mind. And so mm. to me, it just really like hits on like the, the treatment of, you know, people with um, mental illness or uh, people with neurodiversity, you know, just like who is, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like the fact that so yeah. many men feel like they have a right to control women and, like, and set limits. Power. Yeah. Like this is this you is a oh, safe. Yeah, you're so not powerful. safe. Like you could only be this powerful. It's not safe for you it's to be bullshit. more powerful than this. You need to only just be within this box of powerful. Like that's what I really what really yeah. struck me about her yeah. character. And it just also looks like the idea that just like that's ever a solution right. to anything. Like, I don't know. It's just, and I mean, I think this is yeah, one of the places where, like, the, the so film great. series, like, kind of enacts its own things that it's trying to point out. Like, because at the end of the day, Jean is still, like, the dangerous, overly emotional, out-of-control woman, which is a, you know, harmful stereotype. And I think she becomes mm-hmm. a little bit women in refrigerators kind of thing for both Scott and um, Logan, where it's like her death or loss or like going out of control like gives them all something to mourn and gives them a plot point or whatever so yeah for sure although i I did like the display of emotion that was allowed to scott like i can't think of that many moments in pop culture where men like are allowed to lose it about grief like you know, for him to be not showing up for work, right. for him, like it's it's like you can see them getting yeah. angry often, but like I don't think you often see them like dealing with it in a way of like I can't function, yeah. I can't go to work, I can't. That's live a my good point. Because yeah, I'm because breaking. I mean, the whole trope mm. of women refrigerators is that in order to give a male hero space to show emotion, the only thing he's allowed to show emotion about is the loss of a woman he loves, a, a romantic interest he loves. But I think your point that like. It's not Scott being like, oh, I'm so angry. I'm going to go get revenge and shoot the lake with my laser eye, which he does. It's also him like, I can't go to work. I'm, <laughs> I'm not myself. I'm like, I'm weakened by this. I'm not, I'm not motivated by this to go and like do a heroic fucking awesome thing. I'm, I'm undone by this, you know, in a way that's like not traditionally, you know, productive or powerful. Yeah. And I thought that yeah. was nice for the trope like i i would rather just not have the trope and i actually one of my notes in the first movie is i feel like her character is so powerful and so sidelined in the first movie like almost this thing of like your so in the first movie it's like oh um you can't handle it like stay on the side the second movie it's like oh my powers are off until she's like the hero and then she's like right it's just yeah it's it is really interesting like, because there are these badass women in the films and then you're kind of looking back and you're like, 
you didn't get a lot of speaking time, Storm. Like, you actually didn't get a lot of... I'm looking up right now mm. to see if, like, if these films passed the Bechdel test, because I can't just, like, figure it out in my head. Okay, X-Men fail. X-Men original failed the Bechdel test. Um, mm-hmm. Because it... It had two named women, but they don't talk to each other. Um, Three named women, at least. Yeah, look up X2 Four. now. But they don't talk to each other. So, I mean, in my class, we talk about the separate issues of representation and, like, what, you know, you can have a movie that's very allegorical and, and hitting all these issues like we're talking about, but still not be fairly representative of women, right? And include enough women or women of color. I'm, I just finished reading the first ten issues of Ultimate Spider-Man with Miles Morales. I signed it to my students. I love the book. I mean, it's amazing. It's so cool to have Miles Morales. He's a really awesome superhero. He has a really different background. Uh, he's a, you know, black Latinx superhero. But at the same time, my students and I talk a lot about the, like, the boobs and butt pose in, in comics, you know, where they kind of contort the female characters so she's both showing off her boobs and her butt at the same time in this, like, anatomically impossible way. And it's, like, the only time you see a woman superhero in the first ten issues of Ultimate Spider-Man, she's literally doing that pose on the first page. And so you're, like... How can you nail it on race and ethnicity, but completely fail at gender? Mm. Like, this is a, this mm. is just... It's true. But this happens all the time. I had an argument with someone the other day, uh, a black man, who, which is relevant for the story, who sent me a bunch of sexist memes, and I was like, why do you think that's okay? And it's like, just... I guess maybe, like, in a way, it's a privilege that I came from a family that really doesn't get into any of the things at all. And so for me, it's like when I became a feminist... Um, I was like, cool, that I care about everything now and I'll do my best. And I, look, I'm not perfect. I could be way better versed in disability issues than I am. But like, I try my best to like, look at every different type of like social justice issue and see how I can be a good ally. And I'm constantly in a framework of learning and, and whatever. Whereas you get a lot of people and I, I know a lot of people like this who are like, well, these are the things that affect me. So I care about those. And like, I remember there's a, a black lives matter, like a big black lives matter person in Australia who I knew. And she started posting all of this really anti-trans stuff. And I was like, Hey, like, and, and she's like, it's my religious beliefs. And I was like, Hey, okay, cool. But like, maybe just don't, maybe don't contribute to someone else's oppression if you're asking people to care about what impacts you like totally and it's it's like it's every direction of i mean of course you have white feminism which fails to you know do take any kind of action about racial injustice and it and totally ignores that and you have failures within anti-racist frameworks to include trans voices women's voices queer voices Mm. this goes back to i mean this goes back to like the 19th century when you have like Sojourner Truth standing up at the Women's Rights Convention uh, in Akron, Ohio and saying, ain't I a woman? Like, you guys have left black women out of this conversation entirely. And you, you, you want votes for women? And I'm just here, like, being like, fuck you guys. Yeah, let's end slavery, but, you know, continue fucking women over. And so all these, like, even Patricia L. Collins, when she coins the term intersectionality in the 80s, she's doing it to talk about the ways that women are being left out of the anti-racist mm. movement and the ways that... Black people are being left out of the feminist movement. It goes both ways. And it's just like, it's just disappointing when you find a comic you love that does one thing really great and then, you know, mm. completely fails at something else. It's like, why can't you do it all? Just like, just be, yeah, but it happens so often. The good news is, it looks like X2 and X Men The Last Stand um, included 
you know, um, pass the Bechdel test. Oh, that's have good. you heard of Have you heard of the Harvey Renee index? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I don't think I, neither movie passes that. Um, that's the um, that's the two people of color talking to each other who are not relatives. Is that that one, or is it a different one? My understanding is that for every straight, and this is just based on census data in America, mm-hmm. for every straight cis white man you have in a in a story or in a superhero team like the X Men, you should have two people who are not that, who are some oh. kind of other identity that's not a straight cis pet white man. I've never heard of that. I think I was thinking of the Ava DuVernay test. It's after Harvey. Um, oh geez, it's from the DC world. Renee Montoya. Um, and, and Harvey's like the other DC comics, um, detective who's a straight cis hat white man. So it's mm. like, it's like for every Harvey, you need two Renee's, right? You okay. need women, you need queer people, you need people of color. Mm. Um, and so all three X-Men movies clearly fail at that. Which is interesting because they're like relatively diverse for the era, I guess. Yeah. No, they are. Yeah. For the era, 100%. So, so much. We have so far to go. Yeah. I think that, you know... These movies are just really great to look back on and to say, like, wow, I can't believe this was happening in 2000. I can't mm. believe that this was happening in 1963. Like, they, these, they just have such a history of doing this work of pointing out, you know... And, and I mean, this is sci-fi and superheroes at their best, right? Serving as allegories, serving as, like, utopic, dystopic, like, ways to point out shit that's going wrong in our society. And for X-Men to just, like, fulfill the promise of that for what superhero sci-fi stuff can do is really cool well i've been thinking about it a lot lately with the um i've been re-watching battlestar galactica because like i just watched it for the first time with this podcast i don't know if you knew that and um and i've just been re-watching and it's just so interesting in this time of crisis whilst it's not the same crisis just looking at the decisions of the leaders and sort of how they deal with different issues and everything it's just so relevant still and thinking about this, like, Minister of Education who got thrust into the presidency and how she's yeah. such a great leader. And yeah. it's just like, maybe the leaders that we need are the people who don't choose to be. Have you seen the Have you seen the meme going around that's just like, here are the leaders of the countries with the worst COVID rates, and it's all oh, men. Yeah. And then it's like, here are the leaders of the countries with the best COVID rates. Yeah, I'm looking... We, I, by the way, I just want to point out one thing that we haven't really yeah. touched on. So... The first X-Men movie, the major climax takes place on Ellis Island, Mm because that's where the world leaders are convening to have their convention or whatever, and and that's where Menino tries to make them all mutants. Apparently, X-Men premiered at Ellis Island on July 12, 2000. It's like, do do they set up a a projector screen or something? Like, so they're making these choices around the film to, like, set it on Ellis Island and then premiere it on Ellis Island, and then the film begins with this, you know, like holocaust reference so Mm. i also think there's a ton going on here with immigration which you know like you could just read everything into this but there's a ton going on here with immigration too in the sphere of the other in the sphere of Mm. like this isn't america anymore if we have we didn't even touch on that but that's so true that's so true and it, it is like it's been really frustrating um for me so at this point as we record, I'm awaiting a visa. Um, it's really complicated to try to live in the US. I'm incredibly fortunate as an Australian. Um, I I guess I'll say this and I'll cut it out if, uh, if I have to, but I um, was lucky enough to win the lottery last year 
And just as I was coming up for my green card interview, all of these bans happened, which means that I've effectively lost that. And by applying for a green card, I've potentially ruined my chances of returning to America as a non-immigrant to work. So getting to the US is very hard. It's so stressful. Um, it's very stressful when you're tied to an employer. Um, it's very stressful going through the visa process. It's expensive and it's terrible. And then the other thing that um, I sort of guess exists with that is that you are paying you're paying so many taxes. Like I pay at least as much tax in New York as I would working here in Australia, if not more for absolutely no benefits. You know, all of your money is going towards the fucking military, like uh, whatever of America. And and it's incredibly difficult. And um, just watching all of the rhetoric on like Twitter of these people saying like, that they're freeloaders and all of these things. It's like, I am a white Australian woman. I'm sure I'm not who they're thinking of, but the amount of money that your government makes off the backs of immigrants who don't have any rights to anything in America is just like huge. And I mean, that that probably, just to tie back to X-Men, like the Mm. the tie in there is probably just the way that like over and over and over again for, you know, 60 years now, the X-Men save and rescue and protect the people who hate them and use them. And- 100%. And the same with immigrants in America. Yeah, Absolutely. all they get all they get is persecuted when, you know, they're they're saving people with the X-Men or they're doing the jobs that we critically need that no one mm. wants to do here. Like and pay their taxes and you know, like are are, are often the most patriotic Americans um pre and post naturalization like it, it's a, it's a it's a really apt and disturbing metaphor. In it's awful. It's awful. And yeah, it's where people. It's where the brightest people go to like better themselves. And I, like, I mean, I'm not saying I'm the brightest person, but like, I consider myself in that camp of people who like. I looked around at how I could build a career in podcasting in Australia, and it's just not really existent. There are like very few avenues, and they're very traditional, and just not like for me. And it's like, yeah, so I want to go to New York and like be somebody who creates things and creates jobs and like, you know, I'm not, and pay taxes. Like, you know, I'm yeah, not yeah. trying to steal anything. And it's, it's really heartbreaking to see this at the moment with all of the immigration bans and, you know, making the mistake of sort of looking at hashtags online and being like, no, <laughs> right. Arguing with people on Twitter being like, you don't understand. I mean, there's, there's a great moment in the third X-Men movie where, so Mystique can make herself look like anyone and she mm. can make her voice like anyone. And, and people definitely see this as a, as a trans metaphor because she can be male, she can be female, she can be man, she can be, she can be you know, whoever she wants to be. Um, and But but when she's herself, she kind of has this like blue scaly skin. She mm. looks really alien and, and other and non-human. And I, I think it's in the third movie or it might be in the second movie, Nightcrawler, who's also blue and has like a tail and like pointy ears and he definitely doesn't look human either says to her, if you could look like anyone, why not just look like a human and just blend in and live your life that way so people don't, like, come after you and attack you? And and her answer, I don't remember her exact language, but she's basically like, because there's nothing wrong with me. Because, mm. like, I shouldn't have to make myself more whatever, more straight, more cis, more American, more, like, I add to the world and to society by being me and, you know fuck everyone who who doesn't see that like they're the ones who need to change not me i don't need to fit into your box yeah and i feel that way about immigration like we don't need anyone to come and like stop being themselves and and, like lose their culture or lose their their language or lose their heritage just to assimilate like Hmm. that is exactly what enriches america and absolutely and even just like bringing it out to like 
the discomfort that people feel about say like somebody who doesn't fit into their box like a non-binary trans person or a queer person or whatever it's like why should they have to make you feel more comfortable like what you're asking is for them to adjust like just take people as they are and don't be a dick basically it's just what I feel like saying all the time it's like oh well it makes me uncomfortable to say that and I'm like and yet like you're questioning their whole existence by refusing to call them by their name by refusing to call them by their pronouns and like it's just really easy to not be a dick yeah and i mean it's 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 true too of those x-men who are very visibly out right whether Mm. that means a really visibly out queer person or or really you know a person whose disability you can read in their body and so Mm. there's conversations throughout x-men about you know when it's privileged that you can pass when you don't Mm. you know look blue when your skin isn't blue they're always blue for some reason hank and nightcrawler (laughs) and they are always blue yeah (laughs) But, um, you know, so there's conversation around that, around, like, passing privilege and things like that. But also just around this idea that, like, you look at, you have this beautiful, really different, unique body. And, um, like, that's how it is. That's how you are. Like, trying to conform that to how society thinks you should look is just very, like, boring and, mm. and incredibly oppressive. And It's um, so boring. And I it's just, just like, what does it accomplish? Like <laughs> nothing. Like, what? You don't owe anybody anything. Like... It's it's on them if that makes them feel uncomfortable and it's not on you. And that's one thing I love about living in New York. I feel like it is this place where you're just like, oh, that person's just like, I don't know, walking around with pasties on and like the middle yeah. of the street. And like, that's fine. That's their choice. Like they're living their life. They're, they're having fun. And I think... I think, like, what's cool is that you have that dichotomy in the th- in the third movie, then, between Rogue, who gets the cure and mm. is happy about it because it was her choice, mm. versus Mystique. Mystique got the cure because someone shot her with a syringe against her will. And so she got the cure non-consensually. By the way, we didn't even talk about how people have been trying to cure gayness out of people oh or transness God, out of let's people. Talk about it. Right, like conversion therapy and things like that. And so Mystique gets the cure against her will, which... Magneto pointed out, like, as soon as there's a cure, they're going to put it in guns. And he was mm. right. Um, and so, and she's heartbroken. She doesn't want to lose what makes her unique and what makes her different and what makes her stand out and makes her powerful. Uh, so that dichotomy is really powerful. That the, the film is able to say, like, both are true. Like, you know, you can have this cure if you want it, if it's your choice. You don't have to have it, though. And if you get it against your will, it's tr- incredibly traumatic. Absolutely. No, I that storyline of Mystique is just... The way that he dismisses her, it's just like the difference between, I don't know, like it's a difference between, and I I see this a lot, like you see different people on, I'm going to say broadly the left, and it's like, there's there's a difference in the way that people interact with each other, and there are some people who are like, well, you didn't know the word for, I like to use the example of the word trans, uh, as in either transsexual or transgender, so you can talk to someone who's older and they don't know the transsexual, and we've spoken about this, is not the word to use anymore. Like they just right, it's out know. of date. They it's never really, yeah. learned it. That's what yeah. they knew. They're like Gen X, boomer generation. They just think that that's sure. what it's called. And like, it's sure. not their fault. They're not trying to be hurtful. And there are some like activists who will be like, you use the wrong word. Like, be done with you. Like, fuck you. Like, you are oh, I see what you're canceled, saying. Yeah. you know? And there are some people who will be like, hey, actually, right. that's just not the word we use anymore. And it's not your fault that you totally. don't know it. And, and you know, like, so Mystique gets shot with the cure because she's diving in front of the bullet mm-hmm. for Magneto. She mm-hmm. saves him. And it's like, she could still be, you know, useful to him or whatever, or support his cause, even, even without being a mutant. Well, he um, says she was so beautiful. She yeah, was. Yeah, I know. And, and then she rats him out and gets him, you know, gets him 
um, I think she, she like plays a role in his downfall because mm. she's bitter and angry and wants revenge. If we can kind of, I was trying to think of ways to sort of bring that into the real world. And it's sort of the same thing with femme lesbians or like um, bisexual women in heterosexual relationships or whatnot, or like passing trans people. And it's like, totally. there's like the community rather than sort of seeing that as an, as a resource to sort of be within communities or even just allies, like rather than seeing it as that people are sort of like, you can't speak to our experience because you're passing. You can't speak to our experience because of this. And it's like, just because it's a different experience. And like, I acknowledge that I have a different experience of being queer than people that I know who are more overtly queer, but like, it doesn't mean that I'm not helpful. And sometimes being able to be a, like a part of conversations. I mean, similarly to you working at a Catholic university, right? Like it's, it's like being able to sort of like be a part of those groups and have conversations actually has the ability to create a lot of change that, you know, they might not engage with someone who they perceive as being openly queer, openly trans. But if you are someone, I mean, conservatives love talking to me for some reason. I think I'm Australian. I'm like, Uh, I'm like young and like whatever. And it's just like, Oh, this young woman's talking to us. And it's like, yeah, cool. So let me tell you about like, you know, why gay marriage should be legal. You know, like it's, it's, it's it's like you have these open doors that other people don't have. And I think too often in the sort of social justice circles, it's like, well, you don't have a right to talk about this because you pass. Whereas maybe it should be, well, you can get into the room with people that we can't. So like, how can you be helpful? Totally. So like the, the, the very thin line between being someone with privilege within a oppressed group and being someone with, you know, usable ally capital, right? Mm. Or the or the very, very thin barrier between and sometimes and often overlapping barrier between being someone with privilege and someone who's erased. Right? Mm. So there's there's two there's two nonfiction essays that I assigned to my my nonfiction writing students in the same week. One is by one is called Secret Latina. Mm-hmm. And um it's by a uh, a woman who's writing about how she's so dark-skinned, she's Afro-Latina, that she's not read as Latina. Her identity as Latina gets erased, and um, and the Afro part of her heritage just sort of supersedes everything. But also, she talks about the colorism within the community, and that like light-skinned women in her communities are often seen as like more attractive than dark-skinned women. So like her dark skin is a you know factor that like gives her less privilege than her light-skinned Latina um, community members, right? Mm. That same week, I always assign another uh, essay by a man who's Latino, but his skin is so white that his Latino heritage is erased, and he's just read as white in in his communities. And so he, you know, doesn't exist as a Latino person to the people around him or even Mm. within his own community. And so it's like what's privileged to one is erasure for the other. And it's, you know, they're, they're, they're two sides of the same coin in a lot of cases. Absolutely. Um, I was listening to the, so the Bechdel cast did an episode about the Cheetah Girls, you know, the Cheetah Girls movie. Yeah. Um, and they were talking about the difference between the books and the whitewashing. And they were talking about, uh, I don't remember the character's name, but like the white, the white Cheetah Girl, who is actually uh, Latina and indigenous by heritage, but she looks really white. Um, and so there was a lot of talk about like whitewashing and they put this white girl there. And even in the movie, she's coded as white. Like she says, oh, because I'm a white girl or some relatives that, but actually she has all this heritage that is wow. just like not even explored. And then, you know, she's the, the whitewashed element of the cheetah girls, which is really interesting. Wow. 
Mm. Yeah, and I think that happens in the in the queer community, right? That like mm. on the one hand, like if if I, you know, dress in such a way that I can pass as a straight lady, mm. I'm I'm going to walk down the street and probably not get as many stares or as many weird looks as if I dress in my more androgynous or butcher clothes, right? Mm. I'm going to I'm going to get less raised eyebrows. Mm. So I'm going to have more privilege in that way. But then I'm also, if I, if I walk into a coffee shop and I want people there to know that I'm gay, I'm going to not exist as gay in that space and I'm going to get erased, right? Yeah, so like, and why should the clothing that you wear, like, be indicative of your sexual orientation? Like, for me, that's just, like, I, I it's just so wild. Like, I have friends who, like, are very, I guess, like, which dressing, who are not gay at all. Like, who you would, like, look at and be like, oh, they're gay. And it's like, no, that's just how they dress, you know? Yeah. Um, whereas I don't think many people would look at me and be like, oh, she's queer. Like, I don't think that's obvious at all. I'm, like, extremely That's interesting. Mm. Yeah. It's, it, is, it is really cool how X-Men explores the ways that we can, like, you know, how, mu- how much control you might have or not have over your ability to pass. And, and that's why I think it's so poignant when Nightcrawler is asking Mystique, who does have the ability to present however she wants mm. and but her but her true self looks a certain way and she's like this is how i'm gonna look and i i'm not going to hide it i i you know i'm not here to like try to fit in i i'm me and i'm beautiful and like she she has so much confidence i mean mystique has so much confidence and um she's a she's a really exciting character she is i her arc in the um in the newer movies is really interesting I don't know if you've watched I haven't followed too much of them, no. Oh, because she starts out like uh, she's living with Charles Xavier when he's younger. Like he basically finds her rummaging through his fridge and I'm not sure why that's the case. So the school where they go to is actually his family estate that he turns into a school. And in the movies, basically, she is like, he sort of finds her and like adopts her into his family. So actually in the in the new movies, she and Charles are like childhood friends and then they oh, meet wow. Magneto and then they're all like very close. And then she ultimately goes over and joins Magneto, which is something that like you don't really see in the movies, a relationship between Mystique and Charles Xavier or, or Hank. Like Hank is like her romantic interest in the new movies. Um, and they're all really hot and young. You know that too. I mean, yeah, I've I've read some really good disabilities scholars talking about the so like one thing we haven't talked about is that like these movies are both allegorical of these issues, but then in some cases like representative of these communities, which I guess we did talk about. But like, you know, there is a man in a wheelchair in the in these movies, and the fact that he's in a wheelchair really has nothing to do with his character or his plotline. It's which just is incidental. Actual like. Which is what, like, I always say to people is they're like, oh, but look, representation. And I'm like, it's representation when it's not a plot point. Like, one of yes, the reasons that yes, I loved, um, yes. uh, we would both call her Nomi from Sensei, why I loved her character oh, I love on the Nomi, New I World. Love but why I liked her character on the New World, L Word, is that they never mentioned that she was trans, ever. And, like, no, she's just, she's, she's just, just a, a badass, beautiful, amazing character. Exactly. Who just is that, there existing. Exactly. And there's no mention of it. And I think that, like, that's when. That's when progress is being made. Like when you yeah, have characters, right. like I love that. I haven't watched it for ages, but the hundred, they had their main character. She was dating a man and then she was dating a woman. And there was no like questioning or like, right. what is this or whatever. It was just like, oh, she was dating a man. Now she's dating a woman. 
And sci-fi can do that, right? So, yeah. like, Battlestar can have the gender-neutral bathrooms and not need to give you a fucking whole backstory on how they came to be and what's going on. It's just, no, this is just the world. Bathrooms. It's just this intensely optimistic, like, we're all... I don't mean the, the danger, right, is of, like, oh, we're just going to be colorblind, which is problematic, right? But mm. in terms of disabilities, what, what the scholars I've read talk about is, like, in the original movies, Professor X's, you know use of a wheelchair it's it's just part of this you know part of him like he has brown eyes and he's in a wheelchair they're mm. they're, they're they're not plot points same thing with with Scott Summers is a uh, prosthetic you know for mm. his for his eyes it's just part of him and it, mm. it looks you know like like a lived ex- disabilities experience but that in the new movies when, when they go back in time and they they want to show you how he became disabled mm. and it's this huge thing and he has all this hair and it's like how does he become the bald old wheelchair using you know professor x like it makes too much of it in a way that it's more spectacle and less like yeah people with disabilities are just like around all the time like anyone um linkite is mutation like basically it's like if he can curb his mutation he can walk but for him to that's bullshit. be able to have this extra power, he needs to be in a wheelchair. That and doesn't even make sense. No, it doesn't. <laughs> I, I hate it. But okay, so I read a really good article though talking about the movie. I think it's just called Logan, right? The, the movie oh, where yeah, there's yeah. and yeah. how how good a job that movie did of showing like the, the thing in, in disabilities rhetoric. A lot of times um, is is talking about how if you live long enough, you're going to be disabled, right? Mm. Like like. We're, we're, we all are going to have less, you know, more, more mobility issues, more, you know, sight, vision, hearing issues as we get older. Um, or even if you get pregnant, you have, you know, you have impairments to your body. And mm. so the, Logan really showed, like, okay, there's a toll for being a superhero. It comes at a cost. And, like, we have these bodies that, like, are going to require more care as we age and are going to require... And, that, and that's not a burden. It's just, like, this is who you are and you're getting older and I'm taking care of you. So Logan's taking care of Professor Xavier... Logan has, like, arthritis, and he's he's definitely showing his age, and then Professor X is... I have arthritis, by the right? way. Right? Yeah. <laughs> in, in my right knee, I'm pretty sure oh, that's what so it is. It's... Um, it's undiagnosed, but I think also the cure is probably just me exercising more, which is kind of hard with an hour allocated outside time. Um, but, no, I think that's really true. I think that we do all kind of, like, face that as we age, and... Um, and it is an interesting framework to kind of look at it. I was thinking, actually, uh, this is like very random. Sorry, I keep running into the table and I know the microphone's making a noise. Um, uh, this is very random, but uh, the Chris Mason interview when he was talking about Sappho's poem about Thyocles, is it Thyocles? Where uh, she wishes for her husband to be immortal, but then yeah. he is immortal, but he just keeps aging. And right. so even though he's immortal, he he doesn't have eternal youth. And right. I've actually had this discussion a lot because like when everybody does the whole like, which superpower would you have? Which actually, which superpower would you have? Flight. Uh, okay. See, I would I would have immortality because I'm terrified of dying, which is I think also why I love vampire stuff. And um, and then people are like, but which kind of eternal life would you want like would you be happy with eternal life if you continue to age and i think it's a really good question because like part of me is like yes but i think that like if i was in the process of it i'd probably feel differently if if there was a way through science mm. to like live indefinitely long i i would do it and yeah. <laughs> when but i but i don't know about you but when, when you mention that to people they get really stressed out by by you saying that like they, they try to talk me out of it they're like yeah but but death gives meaning to life. And I'm like, 
But don't you think that's just because we have to do it, so we have to find meaning in death? Like, yeah. Like, like, do you, sure. would you, would you really, would you really choose to die? Like, like, why would you choose that? And for me, it's just about, like, I just, like, think about, and now I'm going to get myself into a spiral and then just be, like, immobilized for the rest of the day with sadness. But it's like, I think about the world continuing to exist without me knowing what happens. Like, I just want to know what happens. It's like, it's like leaving a TV series, like, halfway through, you know, and you're like, what happens? It's like the end of Watchmen, Mm -hmm. which, like, I totally respect Damon Lindelhoff if he doesn't want to do another series. I think that that was a perfect series of television. Have you watched The Watchmen yet? perfect series Watchmen which like I totally respect Damon Lindelhoff if he doesn't want to do another series because I think that that was a perfect series of television have you watched The Watchmen yet perfect series of television I 150% respect his decision to not make another series but like I also really desperately want to know what happens you know well, that's why that's why I love the ending of The Leftovers oh, it's my favorite spoilers over, ending I still haven't finished it yet I'm not going to tell you anything I'm not I'm not going to tell you anything about what happens. All I'm going to emphasize is that it's the best ending of a TV series I've ever seen because it perfectly sticks the balance between leaving enough mystery out there for you that you're going to keep thinking about it for the rest wow. of your fucking life about this TV show, but enough satisfaction that it's not like the ending of Lost, right? Where you yeah. just feel mad. Maybe that's maybe that's the, that's our podcast, Elise. Maybe we do a, a Leftovers recap podcast. <laughs> I love that. I would love that because because I've listened to a couple, but I didn't like them yes. very much. So I think that you know they were by like all men, and it it like it was fine. But like I, I want someone who does you know like the the feminist angle yeah. on leftovers. Hey, like, why not? I got I got all this time in lockdown. Apparently, my career right now is and from the ha- you know podcasting. there's like two <laughs> and there's a whole season in Australia. You've got to like tell us. What the season three Australia shit is all oh, about? Oh, the season, oh, the third season all, in Australia. You told yeah. me that. That's right. And you said, yeah, the, um, it is. The, the oh, fuck, what's the book series called by the Chinese author that we were talking about? That I, yeah, oh, the three body I read the first one. I haven't read the other two, but that finishes in Australia too. Crazy. Yeah, the third, the third series. It's like on Earth, Australia becomes the like. Uh, Reserve reservation for humans to go live Wild. on. The aliens are like, okay, we're gonna kill every human who's not on Australia within the year. You guys can go hide out there if you want, but like, that's your spot. You can't what? be anywhere else but Australia by the time we that's by the time wild. we move in. This is our planet. Australia now. just always features in yeah. pop culture. So, did you ever read the Tomorrow When the War Began series by John Marsden? So this was no. like no, so popular when I was younger. I think I read them when I was like between the ages of ten and twelve, which in retrospect is very young, but. They were basically like <laughs> the most xenophobic books ever. And I'd love to reread wow. them now and just be like, wow, this is terrible. Actually, that would also be a great podcast. <laughs> Rereading Tomorrow When the War Began, it would be very Australia specific and just being like, wow, this is terrible and xenophobic and awful. Um, but I loved them as a kid. It was basically mm. like these kids go out to the bush. There's a movie. They did one movie on it, which I think was like the first two books. These and there's seven of them. These kids go out to the bush and they're on this like retreat. They're like 18, so they've just like finished high school, and they um and then they're invaded by like some zet like some I think coded Asian country, and like they're in this country town and like everybody's being held in like the um the like fair the showground. So it was like the the fair was like that weekend and they like 
put everybody there. And it's like they they then become terrorists basically, and they're like blowing up random shit. Which like maybe this is where I like look at all my childhood and like t- like September right. 11 was obviously when we were right. both like 14. It's like. No wonder why I'm so interested in terrorism and terrorist theory if I look at, like, Harry Potter, Tomorrow When the War Began, like, all of these books. And they're just terrorism. Star Wars, it's all terrorism. It's true. And, I mean, I guess maybe that's what's really cool about... Maybe that's what feels so neat about watching these original three movies, because even though, you know, the sequels came out after 9-11, they still have that, that nostalgic... What feels nostalgic now, you know sense of of optimism it, it wasn't it wasn't all the world of like how dark and bleak and gritty can we make our superheroes it's it's no, like that's because the first movie was pre 9-11 yeah i think so i think so so yeah. it was like more adult than the, the really crazy joel schumacher batman movies but it mm. it wasn't as gritty as the christopher nolan movies it was, it was somewhere mm. in the middle where you could think like i'm watching a superhero movie it's it's fun it's silly a little bit it's you know people have superpowers but there's also some adult themes here and mm. and the core message that like well you know pr- probably professor xavier is not always right and probably magneto is not always right it's somewhere in the middle this this ability to think somewhere in the middle rather than this like entire you know like life and death like this side or that side like it, it thinks it just feels polarized and there's this optimism that like we're gonna figure it out each each of those x-men movies ends with some note of optimism and um and i yeah it, it feels really nostalgic now Mm, yeah no they were really good they really held up i think that we often dismiss the x-men franchise as being like a bit like i don't know i i feel like to me it's just so much more it's held up so much better than say like the early marvel cinematic universe movies i agree i agree Mm. and i think that like okay so they didn't have they had a tiny budget for special effects in especially in the first movie and they were on a really crunch, you know, shooting schedule. Um, so, but I often find the movies that, like, have that limited CGI, like, even, you know, the original Star Wars movies, they, they make up for it in creative storytelling ways that... I can have this conversation forever. Right? Like, that's the problem just... with the prequels of the Star Wars, like, too much CGI, yeah. too much, yeah. like... Yeah, yeah. I think, personally, that there is, like, an, a, a relationship between the level of, like, special effects of a television show and budget and, like, the actual content. Because, like, yeah. you look at, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, terrible, <laughs> terrible special effects. And it's just so, like, the and same with Battlestar Galactica. Like, the themes are so good. And then I watched something, oh, yeah. like, and I only watched the first season of Westworld. But I found it was, like, predictable and, like, very, like, show like it was very showy it was very for a baseline audience it was like i didn't find it that deep or like i don't know like thought-provoking or anything yeah so um that's just how i feel about it i'm always and so have you seen continuum i started watching i haven't no Oh, Is it good? It, I don't even know where you can get it. It's um, it, it, I mean, it's about terrorism, so I love it. One of our um, listeners actually recommended it to me. I've only seen the first two seasons, but um, Helos. A lot of the actors actually are in it because it's in Canada, so it's filmed in Canada. So it's like the Elwood, Battlestar Galactica. Like it's just like a, it's always the like Canadian actors. They're all in the same like films, um, and it's about a woman who accidentally gets sent back from the future 
with a group of terrorists that were like persecuted in her time and they're very anti like capitalism. And so what's happened is in the future world, like the corporations have taken over like governments. And so it's like, she's on the oh, side wow. of the police cause she's a police officer, but like, actually again, like they're the bad guys, but like they're kind of on the side of good. And so she's, it's it, but it's so low budget and the wow. special effects are so bad. And you're just like, Oh wow, this is terrible, but also the content is great. So I think there's a, I think there's a, a like a relationship there. I agree, and I, I, I think that the, the original three X Men movies, like, they've got action, but it's not all action. A lot of it, they, they, it, it can be a fun comic book movie that's not like life and death serious. How dare you smile during it, like Christopher Nolan mm. Batman's while also being, like, demanding a little bit of its viewers and asking you to think a little bit about, you know, some of these issues that are raised. Um, and the, the the risky argument I'm going to make, and I'm because you have to do this, you know, is, is, is make a yeah, story of it, is, is that, is that this, these movies are the beginning of the Marvel um, behemoth in, in film and TV that we have today. Okay, so mm. I'm looking at... Every movie, I'm looking at a list of every Marvel movie, every movie based on a Marvel property, okay? Mm -hmm. The very first one is in 1986, and it is Howard the Duck. What? Yeah, which opened to a whopping $5 million at the North American box office. Mind you, like, the the most recent Marvel movie, um, Spider-Man Far From Home, opened um, for $92 million. Uh, I think we should do a, our next podcast should be a comparison between... Howard the Duck and like Avengers Endgame. I think that seeing Howard the Duck have sex with a human woman like what? scarred me okay, for so life. I haven't seen it, so sorry. He, spoiler alert: he's a duck and he has sex with a human woman. It's okay. very like Zeus, Lead of the Swan. You know, like I don't know, like lead, like. Say you've even seen this film, but sure. Oh yeah, we had it on VHS for some reason. Okay, so that's 1986, <laughs> right? 12 years later, the next Marvel movie comes out. It's Blade. Mm-hmm. And it, it opens for $17 million at the box office. It accumulates $70 million in North America. Mm-hmm. Right? The next movie, based on a Marvel property, is X-Men in 2000. It grosses, compared to Blade's $70 million, it grosses $157 million, So Whoa. more than double. And it has much, much, much better critical reviews than Blade or certainly Howard the Duck. <laughs> now listen, now, just two years later, Blade 2 comes out and then Spider-Man with Tobey Maguire. Uh-huh. Um, from there, throughout the early 2000s, it's Daredevil, X2, Hulk, The Punisher, Spider-Man 2, uh, Elektra, The Fantastic Four, uh, the other X-Men sequels, Spider-Man 3... More Fantastic Four, and then in 2008, Spider-Man 2, Iron can Man. I say? Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man 2 is an excellent movie. It is! I like Spider-Man I 1, too. I watched it the other day, and I was like, the other day. I rewatched it this year. Feels like the other day. Uh, great movie. Great He's movie. great. He's such a believable, nerdy Peter Parker. Like, mm-hmm. I love Andrew Garfield, but he is too sexy to be Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. He's just too and sexy. Who's, who's the guy now? Also guy too now. sexy. Also, too, yeah. I don't know who he is, but he's also too sexy. I don't know who he is either, but um, I always thought I was like, oh, he's so young. But then it's like Spider Man is supposed to be young. That's what makes Marvel different than DC. So, like, I personally am a DC person. I really love Batman and mm. uh, Superman and Wonder Woman more than any of the Marvel characters. And and there's some great essays about this that I assign in my class. But the, the big difference, the huge like philosophical difference between Marvel and DC is this: in Marvel, 
what tends to happen is that the characters are normal people who end up with superpowers, like Spider-Man. Mm. Like, he's just a normal teenager, he gets bit by a, by a spider, right? Um, and he ends up with well, these superpowers. Just, to me, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like, revisiting it, or, like, actually watching all of the movies for the first time last year, really just felt like stories... I, I had this... Okay, I had this conversation with someone, and it was a Marvel Cinematic Universe versus Star Wars versus the Fast and the Furious franchise. And we're talking about like why I like the Fast and the Furious franchise. And so for me, the Marvel Cinematic Universe is about people with privilege. For me, Star Wars is about, and unfortunately, because I was really hoping the new trilogy after The Last Jedi would like change this, but it's about like being born special right? yeah it's, it's also yeah. about privilege right they're yeah. both about privilege differently like either thrust upon you through special abilities or otherwise being born into like a line of privilege it's about yeah. like it's about like that yeah i'm looking for a word and i'm not thinking about it but there is a word that i'm thinking of that explains it what i love about the fast and the furious is these are just people who exist on the fringes of society mm. who are really like obviously smart in their ways but they're rejected mm-hmm. by society and they've found a chosen family and that's the most yeah. important thing for them and like totally in so many ways like it's such a more morally driven film like film series yeah. than yeah. either star wars or marvel it's like it's kind of right. crazy how that how that is right and i guess so like when we're saying marvel cinematic universe we're talking about like Iron Man, Captain America. We're talking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe that you would like. If you looked up Marvel, Marvel, it's like everything right. since Iron Man. We're not Man. talking about because X Men is exactly like Fast and the Furious that you described. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. X Men is, and that's why like I really like, especially revisiting yeah. these films, like I really loved it. Yeah, is, is it's like X Men is kind of like the Fast and the Furious, right. like um, right. and the Fast and the Furious again, like to go back to our earlier conversation, so good for people of color. So not great for women. Yeah. Or queer representation. Yeah. But it is all like people with disability, like all of those things. But like for people of color, holy shit, this is like a huge world franchise that has been behind the scenes created by people of color that has been so clever from a business perspective at bringing in people from different areas and going to different countries to bring in different markets for every film. Like it's kind of amazing. And that's cool. Flies so under the radar because people just think it's stupid. And you're like, you so made such everything? a great case. I want to hear your whole episode about this because I'm doing the Fast and Furious. I know, with yeah, a, with a friend, yeah. I want to hear mm. it. Okay, so mm. so here, okay, so here's the fundamental Marvel DC divide. In mm. Marvel, the characters, their true selves are their secret identities, like Peter Parker, mm-hmm. um, and then and then they they put on a costume and they put on a superhero identity. And that kind of feels weird to them. Like, Peter Parker mm-hmm. is Peter Parker, and then he has to pretend to be Spider-Man, and he has to go help people. But he's just this, like, poor teenager taking, you know, taking care of his aunt. In DC, it's the opposite. So, like, S- Superman is Kal-El. That is who he is. He was born mm-hmm. on another planet. He's from another culture. He's from another world. And he has to pretend to be Clark Kent. Batman mm-hmm. is Batman. He is this dark, smoldering mess of a soul who pretends to be Bruce Wayne. And, you know, like, Christian Bale plays that up really well. Like, the Bruce Wayne thing is just an act. He just pretends to be this rich, you know, chauvinist or whatever. Same thing with Wonder Woman. She's from a Greek, you know, mythological place. And she pretends to be her her secret identity. So that's, like, the, like, theory about, like, what makes Marvel and DC different is, like, who are their true identities or whatever. Um, that's but, so true. But, like, yeah. so regardless... Okay, so, like, my, my argument is just that if you actually just look at the years these films came out and, and the numbers that they grossed... Of course, X-Men isn't part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, per se, 
but it's before Spider-Man. It's it's the first major Marvel movie period ever. Mm. And mm. Ap- in its wake come Spider-Man, Hulk, Punisher, Elektra, Daredevil, and then Iron Man, eight years after the first X-Men, um, two years after the last X-Men. I just think you're not you're not gonna have Avengers or any of the shit you have today unless you had X Men in two thousand. That was what and kicked that's all your, this that's off. Your final like Q eighty. This is my point. That's uh, the- yeah, that that is the first major successful Marvel movie, and they just all fall like clockwork after that one. Um, if that one hadn't been a hit, they would never have made Iron Man. They never would. because you have to remember today three of the world's top five highest grossing film franchises are superhero film franchises we accept that as a given that every year there's gonna be multiple superhero movies mm-hmm. if you go back to like 1979 the christopher reeve superman it was so risky to make a superhero movie like nobody liked superheroes it was like this nerdy comic book thing who was gonna watch a superhero movie who cares and then in the 80s when batman comes out with you know to the tim burton batman again it's still this like i don't know this is kind of a a risky thing to make a movie based on a comic book. Like, who's going to watch this movie? Nobody reads comic books. This is nerdy. So these things yeah. were, were still pretty risky in 2000, especially because they were seen as kids' movies and not adult movies. So X-Men broke a lot of ground for what you have today. Mm. But I mean, Star Wars was a kids' movie, apparently. It's a good and point, a yeah. Of men and a bunch of boomers will uh, tell you different. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I think if you just look around the marketing, even in the 70s, you know, it's like, there's just so many toys and it's so great. And like, and now we don't even make that, dis- like, now we don't care about it. It's normal for adults to collect toys. It's normal for adults to go to Comic-Con and wait in line for hours and hours and hours to buy the new Batmobile toy. Like, mm. we've we've normalized that and it's great and I'm all for it because I have an office full of toys and a house full of toys that I bought around Batman. No, but- it's taking over. We're totally taking over. Yeah. Um, okay, well, I guess we need to at some point finish this uh, podcast. Yeah, I have to uh, go to so, bed. Yeah, it's it's late there, but it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I think that maybe we have to do this all the time now, I'm just saying. Because, like, as we were talking, I was like, I wonder if we should talk about the Terminator films or if we should do a yeah. Wonder Woman episode. That'd be or great. Should we cover the three, like, should we do, like, a series on all the Batman episodes? I don't know. I'm here for it. Like- Whatever you want to do, it's just so great to talk <laughs> to you. Really, really yes. fun. You too. Thank you so much. Do you have anything you want to plug for a very small listenership? <laughs> I mean, if you want to read, I have a book of poems out about, um, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Xena Warrior Princess, and Dana Scully from the X-Files. I started like, reading it. It's great. <laughs> I, I, I'm waiting for the... I don't have the in-person version because um, I don't want you to send it to me here until I know it's where I'm gonna where I'm going to live. But I've been slowly reading the PDF and it's oh, awesome. Thanks. Love yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, there, there's poetry about various things. You can just go to elisenor.com and there's, there's links to poems you can read or... I have a book about Super Mario Brothers 3, if that's the kind of nerd you are. Of so. course you do. Of course you do. <laughs> and obviously, Elise and I are releasing Sweet Bitter, and you can follow us at Sweet Bitter Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And yeah, thanks Man. so much again. Thanks so much.